and pick it up at Galatians 3, verse 15. And we'll consider 15 through the end of the chapter this morning. Galatians 3.15 To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, did not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. As far as the reading of God's word, I invite you to keep it open as we go through it uh, in our message this morning. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we once again thank you for this privilege and opportunity that we have to come and worship you this morning. Please be with Pastor Bob as he delivers your message and your words. And just open our hearts and our minds of this congregation that we can see your amazing grace. Dear Lord, we thank you for everything that you have given us. This we ask in your name. Amen. Paul is dealing with in this section our standing in Christ. If we have been justified by faith in Christ, where do we stand? What is our relationship with God? Those Judaizers who are, in a sense, verbally terrorizing the churches in Galatia, 
are saying that their standing with God is dependent upon their obedience to the Old Testament law. And that if they are disobedient to that Old Testament law, if they are not followers of that, then they have no standing with God. Paul's arguing in this section of the fact that our standing before God is dependent not upon the law, but is dependent upon Christ and our faith in Christ and our being in Christ. That's the, the, the gist of where Paul is getting at in these verses. So we want to look at this section, 15 through 29, under three points this morning. First of all, the fact that the promise is superior, or the promise's superiority, we would say. Secondly, Paul does tell us about the law's purpose. What was the function of this large body of scripture that God has given. What, what is its function? What is its purpose then? Why did God give all of those ceremonial laws, all of those judicial laws? Why did he give us that moral law? What was the point of it? Thirdly, then Paul comes back to what then is our standing? before God, and we'll note three things that Paul emphasizes here, although I, I must tell you, Paul is simply summarizing here what he will begin to unpackage in the next chapters as well. So it's not like he's just stating this and not coming back to it. He'll come back to it and further develop it as, as he goes on. So first of all, the promise is superiority. Now, when we talk about the promise, let's again define it. It is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile. He's picking up back there in Genesis chapter 12 on the promises that are listed to Abraham. God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and says to him, I will, I will, I will, I will. And one of those promises that God makes is I will make you a blessing to the nations. What Paul is saying is, and, and remember it's not just Paul, it's the Spirit. The Spirit is inspiring Paul, illuminating Paul. This is, is God's view. This is God's take. This is the truth. This isn't just one theory of what this means. But what Paul is writing to the Galatians is that promise that you will be a blessing through you, you will be a blessing to the nations, Paul is saying is the promise of grace. It's the promise that we are saved through Abraham's offspring, the Messiah, Jesus Christ through faith and that that promise as God intended it to Abraham back there in Genesis 12 is not just for Jews. It's for Jew and Gentile. It is for all humanity. That promise that there is salvation by faith in Christ 
That's the promise that is being focused on here. Now Paul's point is that that promise is superior to the law. And the reason it is superior is the fact that this promise, or we might call it covenant, they would be, they, they, they're, they're the same in meaning, that God's promise to Abram, that God's covenant with Abraham, that covenant that I will make you through your offspring a blessing to the nations, that covenant that God made came before the law. Now, that, that's just a matter of chronological record. There is no Jew, there is no Judaizer who could argue in any other way. Did Abraham live before Moses? Yes. What Paul is saying is, just in their world of that day, once a covenant had been made, that covenant could never be altered or changed. Flashes into my mind. I, I think about the, the story of Esther and, and remember the, the whole thing you have there with Haman and he gets the king to sign this document about the, you know, that on such and such a day you have the right to kill Jews. The king doesn't change the law. It can't be. What he does is he gives to the Jews the right to defend themselves on that day. And the whole episode, which was meant to rid the empire of Jewish people, doesn't happen. There are conflicts here and there, yes. But it is certainly not the mass extermination that was planned by Haman. Why? Because the king had put his signet to that agreement. It had become a covenant. You can't alter, you can't change a covenant. And that's still continuing in Paul's day. They understand that. It's a legal document. That's why we speak about our justification as a legal document action on the part of God. He is declaring that we are set free, justified. Can't be altered. So Paul's point is, God made the promise to Abraham before the law ever came into being. So which one is really in charge? Not the law. Because the law can't replace the promise. The promise of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile. Nothing can change that. Paul is saying already in Genesis chapter 12, God is saying Gentiles are part of the kingdom, and they don't have to become Jews to be a part of the kingdom. In fact, Paul points out 
And he doesn't just make it a general statement, does he? That the law came, or that the promise came before the law. He gets specific. He tells them, that happened 430 years before Moses is on Mount Sinai. Now, probably if you have footnotes in your Bible, you're, you're going to read the footnote, and your footnotes are, are going to say, oh, this leads people to a lot of consternation or a lot of confusion because they don't know how they figure the 430. It's very easy. Whenever God comes and repeats his promise of the covenant, the promise always comes in the form, the promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They are considered the patriarch. If you take the time from the end of the patriarchal period to the time of Mount Sinai, you have 430 years. Paul was steeped in Judaism. He knows the Old Testament. He's not, oh, man, I wrote 430. That's a mistake. No. This is the spirit-inspired word. This is truth. Paul knew what he was talking about. The promise See, what, he, what he's really doing is he's re-emphasizing the fact. Because there isn't 430 years from Genesis 12 to Mount Sinai. That there is not 430 years. But there is 430 years from the time of the death of Jacob and his sons to Mount Sinai. In other words, what Paul is really doing is re he's re-emphasizing the fact, you see, the promise was made over and over and over again. God didn't change the promise when Isaac was born. God didn't change the promise. He didn't alter the covenant when Jacob was born. God didn't alter the covenant when his 12 sons were born. The covenant promise was there. Nor did God change or alter the promise when he gave the law to Moses. So the law can't replace the promise. See, you can't argue, well, that's what God did with Abraham. But then with Moses, God did something different. Well, you, you hear that language today. Oh, there are theologians out there who, who have made their name on, on the fact of the, the various covenants and the dividing of covenants and that the covenant of the law replaces the covenant of grace and the covenant of law replaces that. And then they extrapolate, well, there's other covenants then that replace previous covenants and then there's other covenants that replace that. And you get into the whole dismal theology of dispensationalism. What Paul is telling us is this. There is but one covenant in operation for us. It is the covenant that God made with Abram. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to all nations. This is the covenant. Why then the law? What is the law's purpose? Verse 19, right? That's where Paul asks the question. Why then the law? What's, why did God then bring Moses? If the promise is that which is, is active, 
why does God bring Moses up on Mount Sinai and give him Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? Why, why does he give him the law? Why is that handed to him? Paul tells us two reasons. One, it's to awaken guilt and to show the need of salvation. See, think of the promise. The promise is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. What do I need to know? I need to know that I need to be saved. God gave the law to Moses there on Mount Sinai to awaken guilt and to show the need that we have to be saved. The law can never bring life. The law can only bring death. William Hendrickson refers to this in his commentary on this passage. He says, another way of thinking of the law is the law is a magnifying glass. That when you take the law and you apply it to your life, you see how sinful you really are. And you see how great your need is. When we were going through the Leviticus and, and the end of uh, Exodus in our Thursday mor morning Bible study, we, we were looking at it, and, and the question that keeps coming up is, how do you keep it all straight? How, how do you keep it all straight? How do you figure out what you're supposed to do with this and this and this? Isn't it likely you're always going to be stumbling? Yes. That's the point of it. To show forth how sinful we are. See, think of that magnifying glass. Think about it in this context, right? You, you get a little pricker in the end of your finger. Okay? You know, you get a little thorn in there, and you're you're looking and you're going, man, that hurts. Every time you bump into something, you know, at the end, of, ooh, it's there. You know it. But you can't see it. What is it that's causing all of this pain and discomfort? You get out a little magnifying glass and suddenly when you look at it, you realize, oh, I see what it is. It's that little thorn or it's that little wood shaving or it's that little piece of metal that's embedded there. I see what is the cause and source of my pain and, and what, what I yeah, the law shows me my sin and it points me to a sacrifice that needs to be done to cleanse. That's what the law does. That's its function. That's its purpose. See, Paul doesn't say, oh, the law has no use, no value. That isn't what he's saying. That's what he's charged with. But that isn't what Paul has been saying. What Paul has been saying is it has no use, no value for your salvation. It can't save you. That's where the Jewish people had gone wrong. That's where these Judaizers 
are gone, have gone wrong. They see the law as the means of salvation, not that which points you to salvation. So Paul uses an, another idea. Okay? He, he uses the, the idea that the law is a guardian. Look at verse 24 as he used that argument. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, let me unpackage that word guardian for you and, and, and help you to understand what it means. We have our own concept of what that is, right? A legal guardian you got to get rid of that, okay? It has some similarities, but just get rid of that idea. Paul's not using a 21st century term, okay, in first century Christianity. We, we, we're not allowed to do such. So you have to go back and figure out, well, what does Paul mean by guardian? Okay, follow the example. You have a couple of sons, a couple of young sons who, who need every day to go to school. Only sons go to school. It's part of Bethlehem Alive's learning experience. Those sons are entrusted to your most faithful servant. Your faithful servant takes your sons to school. Leaves them there, goes back home, works. The end of the school day goes, picks them up. Oh no, <laughs> that would be far too nice. The servant sits next to them in school. The father has entrusted the servant you can whap them on the back of the head anytime you want. Anytime that they get out of line. Anytime they're not doing their work. Anytime they're not focused on what that teacher is telling them. You can discipline them as harsh as you want to. Now, there are a few of us in this room who have served as teachers. My guess is that each one of us at one time has sat a kid down across our desk and has said, now listen, do you want me to call your parents and have them sit by you throughout the school day? No, 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 no. Okay, then you better shape up. They're actually doing it. The parent is there in the person of the guardian, the trusted servant who accompanies the child to school, sits with the child during school, disciplines the child during school, then comes home with the child and reports to the father, I had to discipline him six times in school today. Guess what? The discipline didn't end at school. Paul is saying the law functions 
as that kind of guardian. It accompanies us along the way. It is trusted by God. The law is not sinful. But the law guards us. The law disciplines us. But the law can never make us a son. Our sonship comes from somewhere else. But the law is the guardian that has been appointed to watch over our lives to tell us, no, that was wrong. That was wrong. That was evil. That was sinful. That wasn't right. And then it exercises the discipline of cursed are you. Cursed are you. Cursed are you because you did not keep all the words that are in the book of the law. The discipline of the law can only be the curse and death. It can never grant blessings. That's the way in which Paul sees the function of the law. That's the purpose that the law had been given. So then, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. That we might be justified by faith. You turn back to, just keep your finger here a minute, turn back to Romans chapter 5. Paul is, is in a sense, going through the same argument with, with the Romans. He's, he's coming at it from a different angle when he writes Romans, but we, we get the gist of it when we come to Romans chapter 5. Verse 20, Romans 5, 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's, he, he's, as, as I say, he's coming at it from a different angle, but it's the same point. The law is there to awaken us to our sin, to show us our guilt, to show us our need of Christ. But now that Christ has come, its function, its purpose is different. But now, Paul writes in Galatians, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. That's not its purpose. That's not its function. What then is its function? Well, that's what Paul unpackages for us as well in the rest of Galatians. So we'll get there. Paul will tell us. That too comes, but in a nutshell, it becomes this. It becomes the way we say thanks. That's its purpose, to show us how to say thanks. 
for that which God has done. But I must stress, that's what we believe the function of the moral law is. All of that ceremonial law, all of that judicial law, was a guardian until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, that is set aside. It no longer has its purpose. It no longer functions in that way. Paul says, then, what is our standing before God? Now, pick it up with me, then, at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's our standing. That's the first thing. We are sons of God. Now, once again, in our modern era, in our modern world, there's all sorts of people who are going to read this. Perhaps it even creeps into your mind and you say, I'm a little offended. How come it isn't sons and daughters? Why isn't it children? Well, let's first rid our, ourselves of one thought. Well, Paul meant that, but he didn't write it. Well, that'd be an interesting concept to think about Scripture, right? Paul wanted to write something, but he didn't. What does that say about our view of inspiration by the Holy Spirit? Paul wrote what he wanted to write. Paul wrote what the Spirit told him to write. Is there a word for daughters in Greek? Yes. Is there a word for children in Greek? Yes. Why then did Paul say sons? Because only sons in the day in which Paul writes can inherit. No one outside of those who are sons can inherit anything from the Father. So rather than, ooh, this being so restrictive... This is as wide open as Paul can make it. Paul is saying that our status, our standing, is that we are all, see, that's the emphasis, we are all sons of God. Not just some are sons of God, not just men are sons of God, not just Jews are sons of God, not just rich people are sons of God. Not just educated people are sons of God. Not just masters are sons of God. All are sons of God. All stand in line for the inheritance. All are going to receive all the rights and privileges that belong to sons are coming to you. Do you know what one of, the, one of the privileges that sons had? Sons got to sit at the father's table. See, what Paul is saying is, is that all of us now, you see, have that right and privilege to sit at the father's table. 
is an honor. We don't just serve certain types of Christians at the table. We just don't serve certain races of Christians at the table. Believers are welcome to the table. Because that's a right and a privilege that sons had. He's using the word and the term that for them in their day includes all the richness that Paul can give. Paul in Romans refers to it as we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. That's how much we are sons of God. As Christ is the heir, so are we. What an amazing thing to think about what we have. See, the Judaizers want to maintain all the distinctions. The Judaizers want to retain all of the class distinctions. They want there to be Jews and Goyim. They want there to be a court of men and a court of women. They want there to be a, a place for the owner, the master, but another place entirely for the slave. And here comes the great news of the gospel. No, we are all sons of God. Regardless of gender. Regardless of economic status. Regardless of educational status. Regardless of if we're free or if we're slave. In Christ, we are one before God. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In terms of our salvation. In terms of our standing before God. Not in terms of the reality of our skin color. Not in terms of the reality of the nation in which we reside. Not in terms of our gender. Not in terms of whether or not I'm a slave or a, a freeman. But in terms of my standing before God in Christ, we are one. There is no distinction. Salvation is granted whether one is a male or female. Salvation is granted whether one is a slave or the master. Salvation is granted whether one is a Jew or Gentile. Why? Because God promised by covenant to Abraham salvation in Christ by faith to all who believe.
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs. According to that promise. The promise makes us the sons of God, which makes us all one in Christ, which means that we are all heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of grace, heirs of faith, heirs of salvation, heirs of righteousness. All the benefits that are ours in Christ. One of the commentaries I I read, it, it said that the father in a, in a household would often have a special cloak. And he would pass that cloak on to his son. The son would wear the cloak as the sign of the fact that he was the heir. That's what God has done. The robe of righteousness of His Son, Christ. We have been made co-heirs with Christ. So the cloak of righteousness falls upon us as well. We're the heirs righteousness. Do we do anything to earn it? No. It comes to us by grace. Through faith in Christ. See, there are some who when they approach this table next Lord's Day will say, oh, I don't don't think I'm good enough to come. What an affront to Almighty God. Oh, I don't mean that there shouldn't be some humble introspection, that we shouldn't be looking at our lives and and going, I'm not worthy to come to that table. Of course we're not worthy in and of ourselves. Never worthy in and of myself. But I am welcomed at that table because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God says, come! Come! I want you to come to my table. It's your right. It's your privilege as my sons. You wear the robe of righteousness. You wear that cloak of Christ. Come. And no, we're not going to serve some people first because they're better class of Christians than another. We're not going to serve men first and then women, and we're not going to let the Jews come first and then all the Gentiles, or in our context, perhaps some other nationality first and then another. We're not going to let the wealthy come first and then the poor. See, that's what Paul's correcting in Corinth, isn't he? All these errors of how the, whole, of how the Lord's Supper was to be used. In Galatians, he's given us the practical 
the theological aspect of it. Corinthians gives you the practical application. Here's the theological. You're a son of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have a right to the table. Come. And God's people say, 